All right, guys, our next guest is known for his fantastic analysis on both Morning Combat, the Luke Thomas show on Sirius XM, and, of course, his very own live chat. He is kind enough to jump on and chat to us once again. Luke Thomas himself, welcome back to, to Submission Radio, man. Almost forgot our show. And you got a fresh new haircut. I've been wanting to say this to you for the last few days as we've been watching your breakdowns. How are you, man? I'm all right. It's a barracks cut. It's, the, it's my third haircut my wife has given me, so hmm. it's free. I'd say for a free cut, it's pretty good, but... Uh, you know, I'm doing the best I can with what I've got, right? I like your barracks cut. Because when I think of a barracks cut, I think of Major Payne and what he used to do to those poor kids <laughs> when they used to come in with those long, luscious uh, locks of hair. So you're looking good, Luke. And we want to have you on to talk about uh, Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker that's coming up this weekend. Such an exciting fight. But let's kick things off on this first because there's been an astounding amount of controversy surrounding Robert Drysdale and his performance in the corner of the UFC the other weekend. And it's really brought up a lot of debate. People are so divided over it. And it's just fascinating. I mean, what do you think it says about our sport? Even something as seemingly black and white to some is still such a hot topic and is so, I, I guess, passionately debated right now. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's not unanimity uh, in response. I think you're seeing some fighters, um, even Anthony Smith, who I know right? Had his own controversies pretty recently. He was saying he found it to be appalling. I mean, I'm not here to uh, endorse or say it's wrong. I'm just sort of pointing out you have a diversity, you have that side. And then I had a number of fighters contact me saying that, you know, uh, they felt like they would want their coach to do it too. So it's hardly that Drysdale it did something far outside the norms of what even most um, fighters or coaches have either experienced or prefer. I think in that sense, uh, you'd be like, well, if he's doing that, then why is it so controversial? Well, I mean, here's what I think uh, I have sort of come around to. I don't know if this is right, so this is like a working theory about things. But my sense about it is, fellas, and the reason why, you know, again, if, like, if a lot of fighters agree, then what's the issue? Um, I would say that the issue is when it comes to these health and safety protocols, the debate is not strictly limited to what fighters want. Right, like I'm on so many things, you know, in terms of like what money should be, and we, you know, we're always, you guys know this, we're always sticking a microphone in a fighter's face and saying, "What do you think?" Hmm. About any number of different issues, but on these issues, when it comes to health and safety protocol, certainly they have a role to play. I mean, their their voice is as important as any, maybe more than many uh, other kinds. But the conversation is not just what they want; it's what you and I want. It's what regulators want. It's what fans want. It's what um, the sponsors want. I mean, it has to be palatable basically to everyone and none of us have cornered at a high level. So we're not making a comment about that, but if we're making concerns about health and safety, then you don't actually have to have that kind of experience. It has to be palatable, uh, among a, a wider array of, um, stakeholders and observers, right? I mean, if people were dying every week, we would be like amending the rules of this or it would just go away, right? And so I'm not suggesting we're on the precipice of that or something, but I guess what I'm trying to point out is, you know, there's a lot of consternation about, um, you know, people who don't know cornering. Uh, fair enough. I don't think anyone was like, well, Drysdale should have said this or should have said that to get Max Roshkopf off the stool and ready to go. Mm. It was a question of what are we all as a public and a community willing to tolerate for health and safety? You know, when a guy says he wants out unequivocally nine times without wavering, at what point are we supposed to listen to that? And the answers are not easy. And again, not everyone agrees. I just think it everyone's going to have a different level of risk assessment, and we're all wrestling with that. I think the second thing I'd say is, um, and this is my personal belief, and again, it's a working theory, 
I've been trying to understand for the longest time why, and not like boxing has it perfect. I mean, mm. far from it. But like, why do all these boxers and uh, it, 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 like low levels too? Like when guys are making five hundred bucks, why are they so ready to throw the towel? And in MMA, it's such a hard thing for people to do. And again, you can make the money argument if you want. I tend to think it's not very convincing. You can make that, you know, like the risk assessment in terms of what someone's chances are in a sport like MMA, which has wide open offense. It's going to make it a little harder to know when someone's really done. Fair enough. But honestly, I think a big part of it is these people just learned cornering on the job from people who also learned cornering on the job. And what I think has happened is over time, they've just, they, Robert Drysdale has forgotten more about combat sports, sports than the three of us will ever know. Mm. Okay, fair enough. But the reality is, have they made that switch from we're going to be the NASCAR pit crew, get the tires changed, new tank of gas, get back out there? Uh, have, have they learned how to make that switch from that kind of cornering, performance maximization, into health advocacy? And it seems to me most of them, from what I can tell, they don't feel like that is something that they've ever really had to encounter or like their 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 calibration for it is like, oh, it would have had to be way worse for that to get involved. Meanwhile, the rest of us are like, you know, reeling in horror, uh, not just this weekend, but, you know, many other ones. So it seems to me like there's a bit of an issue with them um, coming to terms with how much health advocacy plays a role in that position. It's it's definitely a fascinating situation, and there's also a number of arg arguments there as well. You know, some people could bring up the fact that Robert Drysdale, while he, you know, an expert in MMA and combat sports in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, as all of us know from our time experiencing the pain of being a part of it and uh, doing stuff injured and and taking on guys injured. You know, a guy would have an, uh, a broken, almost a broken arm and still go into comps and figure out a way to get through training. It's a different sort of mentality. Whereas when I've helped corner like amateur boxing matches, you're right, Luke, there's a completely different sort of outlook on it. Whereas this guy shouldn't be taking any, any extra damage. But the thing that I'm curious about from your perspective is there are, have been a few fighters that have also come out and said, hey, uh, you know, quitting is our option. Like it's one of the options that we're presented with and we should be able to take when we're in there to protect our own health. So I'm curious, is this whole thing bringing up a negative stigma for fighters where they might actually be afraid to stop fighting. I mean, it seems like there's a real negativity. A lot of people see it as, I suppose, and it's not cowardice or not being, you know, a real fighter if, if you choose to quit. But if it's seen so negatively and so many fighters are afraid to do to do it, it could increase, I suppose, risks of people not doing it when they need to. Yeah, I mean, the reality is this. Folks forget this. And I've I've also been wrestling with this and I have no answer for it. There are times when fighters quit in big moments in both boxing and MMA and it gets mentioned, but not really. And then there are times when someone quits and it's like the scandal of all scandals. And then you're like, sometimes you can't figure out why one was a big deal and one wasn't. So let me give you an example. Like this doesn't get, I, I'm not bringing this up to like shame him. I, I probably made the right call. But when George St. Pierre got bludgeoned by Matt Serra the first time he tapped the strikes. I mean, people always make that about like what Sarah did. And of course, I mean, Sarah did amazing. But in the end, St. Pierre said, I had enough in the middle of him getting bombed on. He didn't even make it to the end of the round. He just said, screw it. I'm done. And this is maybe the greatest fighter ever. And like this idea that like, oh, they'll live with the shame and they'll never live it down. Dude, he came right back and like, you mm -hmm. know, tore into people. I mean, he may have had one of his better runs after that for crying out loud. Like it's just, I'm not saying it's mythology, but I think 
what ends up happening is I've had people make this claim to me as well, which is, all right, well, if the fighter wants out, you know, they can tap to chokes or arm bars or they can just, you know, do the whole Bob Sapp as soon as the fight starts, tap, you know, <laughs> do that number. So why does the corner need to do it for them? And it's like, it's pretty obvious why, right? Because we have such a stigma, and I like Dan Hooker, but he was making fun of Max Roshkoff. Um, there is such a stigma still attached to it. It's not as bad in bo- uh, in MMA as it is in boxing. And so the corner kind of serves as the person who will fall on their sword for their fighter. Um, it, it's designed to work that way, right? You don't have to quit. I will, I will uh, intervene on your behalf. Mm. You never wanted to say uncle. Um, and so if, if we could reliably trust that people would not need that, that if they really felt like they wanted out, they would just do it. Well, then you wouldn't need that. But if you look at what the commission has done, the referee is the only person who can stop a fight, but lots of different ways you can find a way to fight or surrender. Like the referee can just call it. The referee can call in the doctor who can advise him to call it. The person can tap and then he can call it. And then the corner can intervene and they can call it. Like at every, and by the way, during a fight, in between the rounds, all that stuff. They create a bunch of escape valves at every interval with every different person imaginable in this equation so that there is enough humanity brought to this uh, that makes it palatable, right? That you can, this is a thing that we can tolerate as an activity, fighting for sport under government regulation. Um, So when people make the argument like, well, they really want out, they should just do it. It's like, okay, that's a fine answer in a world where we don't shame fighters who do. The problem is we live in a world where plenty of people shame fighters who do, and as a consequence, they are going to look for other people to help them. In boxing, you get a lot of that. Even then, not, not, not as much as you should, but you at least get some of it. In MMA, it's just like woefully absent. <clears throat> the one the one final I, I agree with everything, everything you're saying, Luke. The one final thing I want to bring up on this, and uh, something that happened yesterday obviously brought up some interesting questions. And that is, of course, everybody saw yourself and Robin Black sort of went back and forth on Twitter. And Robin obviously made an apology video today. But the the big question from it came from who who can sort of have an opinion in MMA? Because there are obviously a lot of people and fans sometimes say this as well, that, you know, oh, if you're not a fighter, you can't have an opinion. Or a fighter's opinion weigh, weighs a lot more than, say, an analyst or a media member. And the problem with that is that if, if that's to be believed, then essentially none of the MMA media or 99% of the MMA media can have any opinion, can do any analysis or anything like that. <clears throat> And I don't agree. And people say, well, fighters are always right. You had even Dominic Cruz and Michael Bisping, two champions, two two elite-level fighters, disagreeing in the main event. Dominic Cruz saying to Michael Bisping, I couldn't disagree with you more. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to go by that logic, one of those guys has to be wrong, and, one, and both of those guys are fighters. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, you know, what is your take on this whole thing that, you know, Unless you're a fighter, you can't really offer anything. Doesn't matter how much tape you watch. Doesn't doesn't matter how much research you do and, and put in effort you put into your analysis. You can't really have an opinion because, hey, man, you, you're not a fighter. What's your take on that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated answer. I'll try to make it short as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, for purposes of my own bio, I mean, I've obviously done a ton of research. I've spent 15 years sticking a microphone in every subject matter expert's face I could find to learn more. But I, just so it's clear... Uh, I only bring this up not as it's some kind of like, oh, stand back, got a badass here. I don't mean that. Mm. I just mean to say I've got about a decade spent uh, in MMA gyms training. Um, So certainly I've never competed. um, And I don't look at that as like, oh, well, he's just one of us. I don't mean to say that either. I only bring it up as like a baseline level of understanding because there probably is something to be said for how much analytical work is possible 
without some firsthand experience. I'm not really sure. I can tell you for me, it was very foundational and helpful. And then I can look at other materials or take seminars or talk to fighters and I can build a little bit upon it. There might be other people who don't need that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just sort of putting that out there. I, I mean, my, my belief is that some of that probably is a requirement to do the job effectively. But the basic answer I give to this, this is something known as um, credentialism. Right, which is this over reliance on credentials as entry into a conversation or you know some other form of uh, informal fraternity. And the reason why it's a problem is because I'm not saying credentials don't matter. Look at the words I'm saying. Uh, it's a over reliance on them. So let me give you an example of what why this is such a problem. There's numerous ways in which it's a problem. The first of which is. A lot of times this is just used not as a way to exclude people who have nothing to contribute, but often to silence criticism that they don't like, right? So yes, not everyone needs to be on the same level as Dominic Cruz. In fact, very few are. Okay, fine. But it also shouldn't be used as, well, if you're not a fighter, you have nothing to contribute when it's really just done uh, as a way to silence opinions that they might find uncomfortable. It's often used that way. I think the second thing I'd say is it's not a guarantee of quality. Um, sometimes it can be. I mean, the reason why credentials matter in society more broadly, like having a college degree or various forms of certification training, the reason why it's valuable is because it's a shorthand way for people to know they can trust your, your opinion and expertise. And that's a good thing, right? It's a very helpful thing to have that. The question is, what is the beginning and the end of its worth? And so a lot of times, as you mentioned, you can have fighters disagree. They don't agree with each other. They don't agree with a coach. They'll leave a coach because they think a coach sucks or any number of different things, all of which could have, you know, profound amount of uh, combat sports experience. And a lot of times, you know, you've heard guys say things um, who have some of these more uh, defined credential roles and they're just objectively wrong. It's not like the, an argument is true, not because I say it or you say it or anyone says it. It doesn't matter who says it. What matters is what is the relationship of the argument to the real world, right? That's the answer there. It, it's not true by virtue of who says it's who says it. It's true by virtue of its veracity. And I think the last thing I'd say is the real problem that I see in combat sports is less those two things, although you see them on occasion. The bigger issue to me is you see this thing where it's like understanding of technique or whatever is either you know nothing or you know all of it. It's weird. It's like either you have competed in this way or you know nothing. And it's like that's pretty clearly not true, right? I mean, there is expertise and very few people might have that. Fair enough. But there are various degrees of literacy that are available to people. This is one of the things that drives me nuts about your citizenry every way. People ask me for a book that I want to recommend them. And the first thing I recommend is Edie Hirsch's The Dictionary of Cultural Literacy. Yo, just, just get literate about the wider society in which you live. You can, you can spend a life not as a professional economist, but that doesn't mean you can't make yourself literate about economic issues. Um, you can spend your life never being a professional plumber. It does not mean you can't be literate about the various uh, plumbing or piping situations in, in homes. Uh, again, that wouldn't make you an expert, but it wouldn't make you know nothing. And so here's the point I'm trying to make. I don't think that my opinion should be weighted as heavily as any fighter. I just don't. I mean, it doesn't mean that on occasion I won't be right and they won't be wrong, but in general, I don't think that I, I rate that level. 
On the other hand, I don't think I should be excluded from the conversation either. I think I am literate about some of these things, and that is also not a degree of infallibility, but I've spent 15 years researching 10 of those on the mats. I've talked to endless of the top coaches and fighters. I beg them to give me information. Eugene Behrman tells his guys not to tell me anything because I'm constantly <laughs> up in their grill trying to get information from them. And so, again, that doesn't make me an authority or anything else, but I'm not totally – I mean, I have no idea what I'm looking at. A lot of times I do. Um, and so the question is, who gets an opportunity to to chime in? The answer is everyone. Um, but obviously, I think that there should be things weighted on to degrees of uh, literacy and then to, to degrees of expertise. Mm. It's a great point, Luke. And I mean, in every single sport, from footy to basketball to soccer to all sorts of places, you know, it's not just about the ex-players. It's about the people who are able to vocalize exactly what you do when break down fights and be able to break it down into such detail that people can get excited about it and can discuss about can discuss parts of fights that you wouldn't usually understand. You do a great job of taking a fight, taking it apart and really sort of teaching people how that fight and how the strategies work. And you, me, Cass, We've been around amazing first world-class coaches who have the biggest expertise but struggle explaining things, you know, and there's two different skill sets when it comes to that. So I think people just need to relax a little bit yeah. and, and, you know. Let me say one thing, if I may, last thing on this, because I know we want to get to Dan Hooker and stuff, mm -hmm. but this is a real point that needs to be made. It's kind of funny, man. Like, I, I, I never was a natural at anything on the mat. I mean, I had size, so I had strength, mm -hmm. but that – I mean, you had to kill a man with your bare hands. <laughs> yeah, I was never natural at it. In fact, what what has happened? I mean, I didn't realize it at the time. It was just enough time passed that I was able to look back and go, "Oh yeah, right, I sucked." And so every time we would get into the situation, I'd lock up with some athlete, and they would be able to just execute everything that they were asked to do. They had this like I call it body intelligence. It just mm -hmm. instantly they could figure it out. You know, you ever seen like somebody really smart in one of your classes? Like they can just observe a problem and diagnose it, whether it's mathematical or something else. Um, the athletes have that. You know, you watch it. You're like, God damn, how do you do that? And then I would ask the athlete how they did it, and they couldn't tell me because yeah. it was just so naturally effortless to them. Yeah. I have found that the best teachers I've had in combat sports, and this is me as a person who learns, were the ones who were not naturals because they had to think about it very carefully at every stage. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What needs to happen? And how do I piece it all together over and over and over and over again? You do that long enough, you begin to develop, again, some literacy, some competencies. And if you're really talented, you stick with it for a long time, you might even develop some expertise. But it was that level of sucking that forced me to examine it in granular detail. Mm. And in a way, I guess I'm grateful for it. Yeah, it's a great takeaway. And listen, while we're talking about expert coaches and high-level breakdowns, what 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 are you gonna? What are you thinking we should expect from the cornering of Mike Perry this weekend, who will be apparently cornered by none other than his uh, master master chief uh, girlfriend over the weekend? Is that still real, or is that just a thing? He's is that just a bit he's doing? It could be the new way to go. <laughs> Those I mean, here's that the girlfriends thing. that are a real disadvantage, Lee. <laughs> here's the thing. I actually, like, Mike does some stuff that, you know, obviously, let's say, draws criticism, you know, one way or the other. Mm. I've interacted with Mike. I found him to be a very friendly person. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand some of the decisions that he makes. I don't – part of me is just under the belief that he's just telling us all this to, like, do a bit. And that this week everyone will show up and he'll be like, oh, right. It's just not a thing he was being serious about. Honestly, man, like we make a joke about it, but like what happens if he's like really messed up 
and he needs some guidance between the first and second round. I mean, that's unlikely, I think, because and she I doesn't kind of favor him five. to win. Imagine she doesn't stop yeah, the fight. Yeah, well, it's like, mm. okay, the cut man, the cut man will put the the you know the Vaseline or the end swell, okay, or whatever. But you know, what if he actually needs strategic advice? I mean, it's become a punchline. But the reality is, I hope it doesn't cost him a fight, and I hope it doesn't cost him his health. Because to put it mildly, it's pretty risky. Yeah, <laughs> it's like uh, that scene in Dodgeball. Like, yeah, we'll see if that works out for him, Cotton. Uh, I'm wondering, Luke, <laughs> which which, uh, which one are you leaning towards more in the actual fight? Obviously, Mickey Gall has the ground game advantage. Uh, people say that it's either co- going to come down to Mickey Gall's ground game or Mike Perry's ability to to get the vicious knockout. Um, as you see, which one are you sort of leaning towards? Yeah, I mean, obviously on the feet, Mike's got huge power, and he's a natural-born fighter. I legitimately believe that. So you would imagine it'd go that way, but on the same time, it's like, if it is true that his girlfriend is going to be his corner, I'm sure she's a nice person, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that's, right, the best choice for the role. And if, if that's the choice he's making, what other choices did he make in training in preparation for this? You know, I, it's just a lot of questions. So I'll say Mike probably should win. I think he's the bigger, stronger athlete of the two. I think, again, natural fighter. Uh, I do think that Gall has gotten better under Joe Schilling, as, as most people would. Yeah. On the ground, Gall probably has an advantage. And he's got some issues about cardio from his last fight, so we'll see. But I guess, I guess Perry. I guess Perry, but ugh, I don't know. Perry via love, you know, the love emanating from the corner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we make fun of his girlfriend now, but imagine she's got the best cornering advice we've ever seen. She's going to become the new uh, Greg Jackson of the UFC. But anyway, let's look at the main event. Uh, Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker this weekend. I mean, you've been at the forefront of City Kickboxing's revolution. You've gotten so many compliments from guys like Israel Adesanya and Eugene Behrman about your tremendous analysis on the fighters from the gym. When you look at Dan Hooker, what would you say are the biggest sort of changes he's made in going from featherweight where he's never sort of been ranked to a guy in the lightweight division who not only has put together some great wins, but is also knocking on the door of a title uh, shot. Yeah, I think three wins in a row, Vic, Iaquinta, and Felder, Mm -hmm. right? Tough fights, too. Uh, The Vic win was short, but the other two were tough. Um, A lot of things. You know, first and foremost, I'll be honest, he's always been smart, you know? The issue for me was at 145, obviously he couldn't, he couldn't physically uh, – he, he was depleted. And the other part was I don't think he could take a punch all that well at 145. Well, it turns out at 155, his chin is great. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he has a tremendous, tremendous chin. Uh, it's it's like it's not an issue at all. And so it was amazing, you know, because I was wondering when he went to 155 how that would look. Uh, great is the answer. Tr- tremendous. So I've been very impressed with that. I think first he's durable. He's extremely durable, which you're going to need against – some of the fighters he's faced, and you are definitely going to need that against Dustin Poirier. That is not a small matter, number one. Um, number two, he just makes really smart decisions, right? which he always kind of did, but he has just got really smooth command of a wide variety of options. So he can switch stances, as we know. Um, he can lead like he did against Iaquinta. He can follow as he did against uh, Felder. Um, he has a really great ability to... Uh, find and stick to weaknesses, right? So you can sort of identify different weaknesses and then stick with them. Um, so that front calf kick that he does now is just uh, is, uh, phenomenal. I mean, he really tears into people that way. Uh, I think one of the better things he's also really good at is he is so dominant at range command. Mm. Wow, he's really good at that, right? The fight usually takes place in terms of the space between them uh, very often on his terms. The only caveat to that is I rewatched the Felder fight 
as it went on, he got tired, <clears throat> and then he started fighting what they call in mid-range, which is essentially boxing range. <clears throat> Pardon me. As he was able to, to move laterally a little bit less, either he was taking damage or fatigue or some combination of the two, you saw that wane a little bit. But like in the early rounds, go watch his fights with Iaquinta and Felder again. Mm -hmm. And notice like when he, when he wants them to be close, they are. And when they're far apart, it's because uh, usually he's the one who is uh, dictating that. He is just tremendous at that. He's got naturally good shot selection, as you guys know. All of those guys at a city kickboxing have tremendous fainting, and they all have different setups for it, and they practice it. So, I mean, he is the real deal Holyfield. How far he can go, I mean, we'll see. But I, I take Dan Hooker very seriously. He is a tremendous talent. Well, yeah, I mean, just on that, that Felder fight, I'm wondering sort of if you think, based on that, uh, I'm, I'm curious who you think won without getting into it too much, but also if he's ready for a guy like Pori, everybody brings up, you know, the Felder fight and also the Barboza fight. And just on that range, you know, Dustin has sort of struggled with guys like, uh, say, Michael Johnson, who had the range, Conor McGregor, who had the range. And obviously Johnson's super, super quick. And Conor has that blistering knockout power, which you wouldn't necessarily say about Dan Hooker, although he has, you know, gotten some great knockouts. But do you think that range might be sort of, in a way, the deciding factor? How do you think that, that Dustin handles that mm -hmm. range in this one? He has hasn't fought a ton of, you know, tall or, or lanky guys. You think about like Jonathan Brookins and maybe Pablo Garza back in the day, but not a whole lot since then. Yeah, neither of those guys are even close to the level of Poirier. Mm. Um, uh, uh, well, you talk about the lanky side, so Hooker, I guess, in this particular case. I mean, here's what I mean. Um, it's it's funny, right? Because Dustin will predominantly be in southpaw because that's where he he will stance switch either to close distance. Or he'll do it um, when someone's really backed up against the fence and he's like tricking them a little bit. But in general, he stays in that southpaw stance. He's got good footwork, um, uh, you know. And I think he's probably the heavier boxer uh, puncher of the two. Uh, but you know, what's interesting is when there's a lot of times uh, Poirier gets, you know, he's look he's looking to fit for the kill. He'll land something that'll really overcommit and do that is one thing. Jesus Christ, dude, uh, you got, we, were, we didn't even get to it. That's one thing Dan Hooker is so good at. Uh, as it was how he had some success against Gilbert Burns. Now, Gilbert Burns had really tightened that up between that fight and then the Tyron Woodley one. Uh, in fact, almost like a different fighter. But he was intercepting him coming in. And then with these step-through knees he was able to throw or these check hooks that he's able to throw. Wow, dude, that is something where if your guy is overcommitting and you're as, you have the sense of timing and the range and then the, the trickery, uh, that Dan Hooker does, that could be a problem to me. You know, I'll say this. I think as long as Dustin, as long as Dustin is pressuring and he's picking the entries, um, I tend to think he might get the better of it because if, if when Dustin fights in a very disciplined way, I tend to think that that's the best of Dustin. So if he's the one with the bigger pu power punching and he's the one who's able to dictate the range, which again, easier said than done, that should be, I'm not going to say his fight to lose, but that should be a scenario where he can excel. The question is what happens um, if he may overcommits. The question is what happens if Hooker gets tired. Um, does Dustin try to switch it up and take him to the ground? Dustin's a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Never forget that. Mm. That's another sort of X factor here, you know, that could really play a role. So it's a, I mean, what a what a crazy exciting fight. But honestly, if you're asking about the damage, you guys have talked to Hooker as well. I think you talked to him recently. Mm -hmm. Every time... <laughs> Every time I talked to him about that, I, I asked him about the Barboza fight. He was like, nah, it was great, you know, because yeah. <laughs> I got hit in the jaw and then the neck and then the chest and then the stomach. 
and then the leg and then the calf, it was spread all over. I'm not worried about my brain. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's one way to look at it. All right, fair enough. Uh, uh, you know, both of these guys have got a little bit of miles on them, maybe Dustin a little bit more, but he's had a lot of time off. I think, again, both of their chins, way better at 155. So um, I, I would say this, though. I think it's probably tougher than the Felder fight. And I kind of thought Felder may have eked it out only by virtue of not numerical uh, landing. I don't know what the numbers were. Um, I thought he was doing a little bit better damage, particularly with that left hook. It was landing over. Remember the, remember the large swelling mm-hmm. on Hooker's face when that fight was over? Um, but very close, very controversial. I can't say that like Hooker didn't win. It was just I edged it a little bit in Felder's favor. And, and Dustin does have some fight-changing body shots that he loves to throw. And Hooker took a, a bit of a boost to the body, like you mentioned, against Barbosa. How much do you think putting water in the basement for Dustin could change the fight? And if the fight does sort of go out into the later rounds, we know Dan can take that punishment and hang in there. Who do you think has sort of has the fight leaning towards them if it does get down into those later rounds? I will say this. Uh... Well, both would fight if uh, both will benefit if the either is stationary. But what I mean to say is, Hooker is more likely to be a stick and move on his horse kind of guy anyway, right? He's very, very selective in that way. Um, whereas Dustin is a bit like pick his spots, but then kind of swarm a little bit. You guys notice how he likes to like land a big one. Somebody like gets cracked, and then they cover up, and then he goes after him. That's a little yeah. bit more his mo. So I would say a lot of this will hinge on the body shots. Yes, I'm really going to be focusing on the leg kicks. Dustin doesn't do a lot of checking. And again, that lead calf kick of Hooker is dynamite. It is absolutely dynamite. And so uh, Poirier, I will say this, Poirier winning is not really a function of range. Well, that'll be true for both. But Poirier, you got to get Hooker stationary. Mm. If, he, if Hooker is moving and he is in an, that, because that way he can pull you into his strikes, that helps him set up the range. It helps him uh, uh, break up your timing, all kinds of things. You got to get that guy stationary, and you know Dustin. Uh, it's up to him to do it. But I think that's sort of what I'm looking for. And if he can't effectively do that, it's going to be a hard fight to win. Yeah, I'm. I'm also curious to see how Dan Hooker sort of comes back from his first five round fight. A lot of times you see mm-hmm. fighters, you know, say they're ready for five rounds. They do five rounds. They get tired. Remember, it happened with John Jones, and then they come back and they're they're just I don't know better prepared or they use their their energy more efficiently. So I'm curious about that. And we're we're still in this pandemic, so it's like people aren't getting proper training. So yeah. we'll we'll see how that sort of goes. Um, we'll let you go in a sec, Luke. I'm just wondering stakes wise, what do you think is on the line here for both guys? You know, they're sort of. Poirier already lost to Khabib last year, obviously, you know, whereas Hooker would sort of represent a, a breath of fresh air for the division. But, you know, the only problem is he's got a whole bunch of guys in front of him. You know, Gaethje's got the next shot. McGregor is supposed to be, uh, you know, next. you got Tony sort of technically still ahead of him in the rankings. What do you think is sort of next uh, for, for either guy? And do you, do you expect Conor McGregor to break his uh, social media silence uh, regarding fighting, potentially say something about, you know, Poirier or Hooker after this fight? There's no doubt in my mind he will say something. Uh, not maybe not before, but although maybe that too, but certainly after. So I, I absolutely uh, expect him to say something. Uh, you know, here's the thing: you look at it and your point. You're like, geez, man, like Khabib is obviously your champion, but all these big names are still kind of up there. Tony, mm-hmm. um, uh, Connor, and uh, Justin. Now, like, what are we gonna do? <clears throat> um, winner here does not get a title shot. But there's two things you got to think about. One. They could end up getting one if a bunch of stuff falls through. Like if Connor really just continues to sit and 
there's no one in his way and Tony for some reason uh, can't get cleared or whatever like this or it gets injured or something you might be able to slot in next so that's the back burner option but I don't think it's entirely impossible it seems to me what's after this is you got one more in front of you and it will all in all likelihood be Tony Ferguson I suspect the winner of this fights Tony um, because as you indicated Tony's just behind Justin and the loss to Justin was bad but Tony has been so good for so long, you think, well, I mean, okay, are we just throwing the guy out? Like, he must still be a top contender, and, and by mm. virtue of his number, uh, he's still at the very top there. And so he's a – I'm not saying he's a gatekeeper, but I'm saying uh, if Tony wins against the winner, Hooker and uh, Poirier, then he might get a title shot. But I t- tend to think it's either going to be Ferguson Hooker or Ferguson Poirier, and in either case, <laughs> either of those is an absolute – I mean, in Triple G's words, big drama show. So yeah. that's sort of what I think is up next. Yeah. Well, just just one more thing on the on the whole McGregor thing. Do you think McGregor would even be interested in any in any of those guys? He's obviously beaten Poirier as well, and Hook is sort of you know not exactly a huge name yet. I I imagine like yourself, he will tweet something about it. But do you think it'll be in sort of the vein of like you know I want the winner, or do you think it'll just be something about like you know I already beat this man, or you know Hook is not on my level, or, or something like that. Yeah, I think it would be like either way, there's no way for the winner to win. Mm. So if Poirier wins, he could be like, all right, well, you still got to go through Tony and I beat this guy, you know, in however quick it was already. I mean, this is my leftovers and this guy's at the top of the division in my absence. Like, okay. And then I'm not saying that's fair, but he might Mm -hmm. think that. And then if Hooker wins, it's like you couldn't even beat the guy that I beat and blah, 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 blah. Like there's just, you know, if he has a win over one guy, there's nothing the other guy can do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, or rather, if Hooker wins and he beat you beat um, uh, uh, Poirier, he'll could say, "Oh yeah, great, you beat a guy I already beat too." So, like, I mean, there's just nothing. There's no way for uh, the person to to shine in this in this sense. But the only thing, it's like it's like, what does Connor want? <sighs> Fuck if I know. Um, it sounds to me like what he wants is either the title shot. Or he wants some fight against a big name. Mm. And I don't think Hooker or Poirier are going to be that. And does he really want to fight Poirier again? You know, I mean, given the stage he's at in his career. So I don't know what's going to happen with Connor. My hunch is he, like, Connor's capacity to do what Jose Aldo was doing at Bantamweight, just like slot in and just get a title shot, you know, his capacity to do that is constant. You can never sleep on it. But I, I, I tend to think that he's going to end up fighting like a Masvidal or something before he'll fight anybody else other than Khabib. Hmm. Mm, yep, he'll be he'll be stealing the headlines that weekend, and it'll be funny if uh, if Dan Hooker does win. It'll be funny because he's quite a witty guy, and there'll be a bit of a war of words from that side. And then also, obviously, Israel Adesanya signed with Paradigm, so there's the whole connection hmm. there. It'd be hilarious to see what happens there. But most important question, Luke, and then we let you go. Let's go into an in-depth, detailed breakdown of John Jones versus Mike Tyson. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding, guys. You can catch Luke Thomas on Twitter at LThomasNews. Morning Combat airs every Monday, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. That's Tuesday here in Australia. The Luke Thomas Live chat, the Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM is now available worldwide on Apple Podcasts and Pandora Selected Highlights, another full show. I love it. It's always a great time and distracted during these corona times. Luke, thank you so much for joining us on the program, man. Always an honor and always a pleasure. Thank you, boys. Always appreciate it. 